Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Digital Health Unplugged. I'm so glad that you've joined us for today's episode because we're going to be talking about something that we've not actually covered a lot of on the podcast, and that is the digital transformation of medicine. In fact, it's actually a new session at this year's Digital Health Rewired, which is coming up in March. Now, as some of our listeners will already know, Rewired is usually held in person over two days with a conference and an exhibition and, of course, the cheeky beers in the pub afterwards. But obviously, COVID has meant that we've had to completely rethink how we deliver our events. So instead, we're going to be holding a five-day virtual festival. So we might be a bit sad that we can't see everyone in person and can't be in a packed room with our colleagues, but our events team have been working exceptionally hard to bring you the very best virtual event that you could attend, and it's going to be celebrating all that is good that's going on in the world of digital health. Uh, And we are going to circle back to Rewired a little bit later in the podcast, but now I want to introduce you to one of the keynote sessions that we will be hosting and the incredible speakers that we have lined up for it. Joining us today to discuss digital transformation of medicine ahead of their rewired appearance are Henrietta Bowden-Jones, President of the Psychiatry Section of the Royal Society of Medicine, Katerina Spranger, CEO of Oxford Heartbeat, Christian Gutman, Vice President and Global Head of AI and Data at Theatre Every, and Tim Ringrose from the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health Council. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'm really, really looking forward to this discussion. Um, But before I start asking all the questions, I am just going to ask you each to introduce yourself and the work that you are doing in this sector. Um, So Katerina, if I could hand over to you first, that would be great. Sure. Thank you very much, Andrea. So uh, my name is Katerina Spranger, and I'm the founder and CEO of a medical startup called Oxford Heartbeat, where we optimize Uh, high-risk, minimal invasive brain surgery by bringing very powerful uh, computational tools, specifically AI-powered technology, to really uh, improve the accuracy and safety of these uh, surgeries. That's incredible. That's very, very cool. I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. Uh, Christian, how about you? Yes, certainly. So thank you for having me. My name is Christian Goodman. Um, I have been working with AI Uh, for the last 20, 25 years and have done research as well as industrial uh, applications uh, of AI in various fields, uh, but a very strong focus on healthcare and medicine and and uh, pharmaceuticals. And um, there are many projects to do with healthcare services that we are involved in, uh, also with optimizing uh, preventative and diagnostics. Uh, I'm uh, located in Sweden, also at the Karolinska Institute, and we have a couple of uh, researchers that are working in the field of uh, healthcare operations and value-based healthcare too. And my primary focus is very much on leadership uh, and how you can enable leadership. I speak a lot to uh, ministers uh, of healthcare and in health, as well as CEOs of uh, large uh, companies. Mm. Something that is um, very important at the moment, especially, um, Henrietta, let's hand over to you next. 
thank you. So, um, uh, uh, yes, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm the founder and director of two national clinics, uh, the National Problem Gambling Clinic and the National Center for Gaming Disorders. Um, and I'll be contributing in the session uh, to um, an understanding of how two services that we're not at all expecting to turn digital actually managed to do a very interesting job of it. And I'd, I'd also be very happy to mention briefly the Royal Society of Medicine's uh, digitalization of its academic uh, program, because that's been a fantastic and, uh, uh, you know, ju just a brilliant um, extra benefit, let's say. Uh, we, we, we thought we could cope, but it's actually turned out to be a wonderful experience. Brilliant. And that leads me very nicely on to Tim. Hello, yes, my name's Tim Ringrose and I'm Chair-Elect for the Digital Health Council at the Royal Society of Medicine. You can always tell when a, a society is erudite when it has Chair-Elects, can't you? Uh, and I'm also um, Founder and Chief Executive of Cognizant Group, which is a, a company that uh, help, provides tools for clinicians and patients to be better connected and to communicate with each other. Fab. Well, you've all got extensive knowledge here, so I'm really keen to see what everyone's got to tell us. Um, but I'm going to start off very basic to start with, um, just so everyone is up to scratch. And when I say everyone, I mainly mean myself. Um, when we are talking about the digital transformation of medicine, what do we actually mean? Like, what does that entail? Um, who would like to take that one first? Uh, I'm happy to start from a sort of patient perspective, maybe, um, uh, and uh, and just mention the uh, the transformation really being in the way we had to learn to deliver the same programs that we had been running face to face, um, but try and reach people who uh, would normally have come to us. And, um, and so for us, it was really about uh, starting with that and then using uh, the information we gathered to perfect the techniques. Uh, uh, for example, the types of groups we run online now, the fact that we use uh, Zoom instead of using the telephone, using feedback from patients about what they found helpful. So that, um, that a transformation in the mode of delivery of a program that was already evidence-based uh, for us as, as clinicians would be um, one, of the, one of the interpretations of your question. Do you think that would have happened um, the way it has uh, if COVID hadn't sort of forced us all to go digital so quickly? Um, I, I definitely uh, would not have uh, taken it on as a as a task in the first year of the opening of the first gaming disorders clinic in the country. It was. Uh, uh, it was rather a, a major thing. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was a question of, you know, we either sink or we swim. And if we swim, we have to go with the tide and this is what we need to do. Uh, but as it turns out, I'll just mention briefly, uh, the children we deal with are very young and many of them have been uh, holed up in their bedrooms under duvets, uh, refusing to come out even for meals with their families. So for them, the idea of suddenly the doctor will see you now, you can be in your bedroom, you know, under your duvet as long as you speak to us, um, was a, was an incredible, um, experience and allowed us to really reduce, uh, the, the uh, non-attendance to almost zero. Mm. 
Um, so Katerina and Christian, I'm going to ask you guys to come in here because I, I wanted to talk about um, obviously the big, shiny, um, exciting technology that everyone gets, um, you know, very into, which is AI and um, what we can do with that, um, because that's the other side of what Henrietta has just been talking about with the more basic building blocks. Um, how does AI and like, you know, these bigger sort of future technologies play into digitizing medicine? Maybe I can... Uh... I can start that that discussion. Um, so yes, exactly. I, first, it might be worth noting that digitization or digitalization, uh, they in themselves are different. And then, of course, AI technology have a different uh, different approach altogether also. Uh, and I wanted to add to uh, what Katarina said before, uh, that, of course, digitization um, uh, and this new era of technology is really affecting every part uh, in the healthcare and medical sector, that's including preventative healthcare, uh, diagnostics, treatments, right? It's starting to be really uh, included in all of these phases. And then you mentioned AI. I think um, <clears throat> this is, of course, going um, beyond uh, processes where you use platforms uh, or where you include patients or send, uh, uh, you know, emails or you have other digital media with which you can work. In, uh, with AI, you start being able to uh, develop and work uh, on processes which were usually done only by humans, right? So you, this has to do with looking at patterns. Recently, there was a big move forward uh, in protein, uh, protein folding uh, problem, which is a very complex problem in finding molecules and essentially a very important part in uh, creating new effective drugs. So you can you can essentially see that the effect of these types of uh, technologies are going well beyond uh, what we would generally think of digital, like you know email and and laptops and so on. AI really starts having a, a role which is much more encompassing, if you like. Yeah, sure. So maybe I could speak kind of from the um, uh, from the angle of uh, innovator or trying to innovate uh, along the. Uh, digital path, uh, medical pathway. Uh, so for us, really, um, the definition of the digitalization, digitalization of medicine um, kind of has two streams. So the, the one is, uh, it's really bringing kind of rapid technological progress that we already see in other areas like, you know, space engineering or robotics, and to bring it in uh, clinical practice where it's, it's very much needed um, and it could be um, so that clinicians can really uh, focus on their core uh, expertise and are supported by very powerful technologies. And the second stream is what we are trying to do is to, by doing that, also encourage a culture of innovation in medical science that eventually, of course, improves health and care outcomes. And it could be with really very different types of types of technology could be very sophisticated ones like AI, but could be very sort of a, kind of a low level, but also very important solutions that would improve the efficacy um, and efficiency of uh, clinical pathway in any uh, in any of the steps. Yeah, so there's very exciting work going on in this field um, by the sounds of it. Um, and Tim, I know that the Royal Society of Medicine um, is, is helping to lead on some of that. So I thought I might ask you um, what the Royal Society is doing. Yes, well, the digital section and all the other sections of the Royal Society have, of course, all been having to use digital technology to engage with members for a start. So where we used to run face-to-face 
conference events in London. They've all had to be transformed into online webinars. And as Henrietta has mentioned, we've seen a fantastic response. The COVID series of webinars has had many thousands of uh, live audiences and even more on the recordings. And what's been really great to see is that the rate of pace of change and adoption of digital has just increased so markedly. Because as you mentioned, Andrea, COVID's been the precipitant that's tipped us over. But but really, we've been struggling. Our healthcare services have been struggling for years to keep up with demand, even before the COVID pandemic. So we really need digital transformation. And at the conference in March, we will have an, a, a wide cross-section of specialties talking about how digital transformation is changing care in so many different areas of clinical practice. Yeah, it's going to be a good discussion, I'm sure of it. Um, so what would you all say is um, sort of the next big thing when it comes to digitising medicine? What do you think are the, going to be the things that the NHS needs to be focusing on in the coming years? Just going back to a more sort of patient-based um, approach in terms of replying to you, I, I do feel the lessons learned uh, uh, must be uh, must not be forgotten once we come out of the uh, crisis we're facing at the moment. Um, I think that noticing these uh, uh, non-existence um, no-shows in our patients uh, means that potentially the um, uh, type of delivery has to consistently change. And um, people, one of the things I noticed, is people used to get very anxious about taking time off work. Um, a lot of people we deal with don't have the autonomy to make decisions about when to be off work for appointments, etc. And their jobs felt at risk to them uh, by taking time off, particularly if treatment was uh, weekly, as uh, the cognitive behavioral work is in behavioral addictions. So that sort of situation, as well as the situation with parents, with children who are unwell, with young teenagers or unwell, needing to actually accompany them to a clinic, which requires at least one of them to take time off. So I look forward to incorporating um, that sort of a work where we reach and we appear in people's environments rather than the other way around. Uh, and, and obviously measuring outcomes, ongoing outcomes in relation to making sure that the delivery of this treatment is successful. And, and that will be a good piece of research. Yeah. Um, Katerina and Christian, what do you think are going to be the next big things? I'm not sure about the next big thing, but I think there will be a lot of smaller and, and medium-sized things potentially leading to a, a big digital transformation. And again, looking at the path where there is just so much potential to improve uh, and uh, improve efficiency as well. I guess with me, um, you know, having kind of an engineering um eye or lens uh, on things um, there is a lot like, I'm excited but also sometimes um, sort of almost like shocked but also at the same time excited about the potential um, looking at how things are done at the moment um, there is still a lot of you know paper use in the NHS there is still uh, difficult to extract valuable information that is for example used for analysis of the for example outcomes in surgeries there is still um Difficulty in sharing information um, among departments across hospitals uh, to gain valuable insights. There's just so much to do and that can be, that can be done, and I'm sure uh, you know we will we will do this in the near future to tackle this because I think uh, 
looking in our niche at surgery, like especially brain surgery, you know, clinicians are doing remarkable jobs, but actually a lot of their time, uh, amazingly precious time is spent on um, quite mundane tasks. And also some of their decision-making is really not supported as it should be. You know, there is a lot of still guesswork in the decision-making for vital um, clinical decisions. And this is where the power of technology can come in, that we can really support clinicians and provide them what they need, you know, at the time they need it the most to, to really improve patient benefits and provide them with the peace of mind, um, you know, making the, the right decisions. Yeah. You kind of led very nicely into something that I wanted to ask um, at some other point in the podcast, but I think maybe I'll ask that now. Um, and that is whether, you know, where the NHS, the NHS, sorry, is on this journey towards digitizing medicine. Because as you mentioned, Katerina, there's obviously still lots of paper used. Um, we're not necessarily making the best use of information and data to support clinicians. Um, so I just wanted to ask, um, you know, where we are on that journey and, and what we need to do in order to advance um, the progress we're making. One thing I've noticed is the, um, and this is in the last year really, uh, the, uh, the fact that we've come up against uh, the need to not defend, but certainly demonstrate the effectiveness of interventions using outcome measures that are delivered regularly, are checked regularly. Uh, of course, we are, we, we, we are still working in the old NHS way where forms are uh, emailed People have to download them because a lot of our patients don't have the sophisticated technology that allows them to uh, alter forms online and send back. So it's a terrible headache for people and very stressful when actually uh, this should be a smooth uh, process that allows us to keep track of their progress. So what we're doing now and the, the, the biggest focus at the moment is using our team of researchers to uh, collaborate on uh, 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 implementing the uh, uh, data collection, uh, identical data collection, because we we know we're doing well in relation to what we want to ask. You know, what screening, what screening tools, but it's actually the interface. You know, how quickly that person can receive it, how safely in terms of confidentiality, how protected they are from the data being leaked, and then that information somehow ending up, as Katarina was saying, ending up in a good place on a right spreadsheet already there without taking up ten. And admin hours. Yeah, admin hours we don't necessarily have either. Um, Christian, you obviously work with data quite a lot. How do we get this right? Yeah, what a big question. I was uh, really thinking here where to start, but, but I think in my experience um, and working with many health authorities, uh, also here in the Nordics and in Europe and with the leadership, I think it's really very important to focus on the most meaningful uh, uh, applications of this technology and the most meaningful trans transformation. And, and what do I mean by meaningful? Well, it should be something that the patients, that the doctors, that the administrators, that the politicians and many stakeholders see as being useful. So those types of projects don't have to be like a you know, big transformational projects where really everything changes in, in one go. Uh, but they should also not be too small, you know, that they're sort of happening on the on the fringes and no one really notices them. Uh, so, so, and then, of course, uh, there's many examples um, where you can focus on. And perhaps another very important 
yeah, let's call this focus, even though I'm coming also from a uh, technology area, more and more of my discussions have been around how do you enable change management? How do you create a new co culture around digital tools, around AI uh, tools that are helping to make better decisions, quicker decisions, reduce medical errors, um, improve patient experiences, improve health outcomes? Uh, so how do you make this part a second nature of people's uh, behavior? Uh, both, of course, uh, both or all of them, patients, doctors, hospitals, um, how can they think in terms of how, for example, data or uh, digital tools, AI tools can make a difference in the organization? Uh, so, so that's probably, um, that's, that's something that I have been discussing uh, a fair bit with um, the uh, the ones responsible for these transformation processes. You know, what's the most meaningful project? Not the biggest, not the the one that saves the biggest money uh, necessarily in the first instance, but those uh, or that increase you know patient uh, well being. Uh, one needs to chew off or bite off as much as you can chew type thing. So, so that would be an um, an angle to look at it. Um, I just would like to add to Christian's point about the change management. Uh, it's extremely important because I've seen number of number of times like amazing ideas, you know, great technology from an engineering point of view that don't really fit well in clinical workflow or they are potentially, you know, too ambitious trying to solve too much at the same time. And often you hear from clinicians, you know, having to implement those solutions that sort of it adds to their workflow. It adds to the, the headache of them needing to worry about sort of like, how do you learn to use that thing? And uh, so it needs, we need to think as kind of innovators and engineers trying to really help um, improve clinical uh, workflows how do we make it as smooth as possible and the idea like the ideal way is to really co-innovate with with people who are going to use this so in our case we really tried from day zero <laughs> to really co-design our solution together with surgeons uh, because if you if you imagine you know like brain surgery high risk everyone is stressed the patient is already on the table so it needs to uh, the technology that sort of we are bringing in needs to be really as easy as possible to use, smooth, uh, um, kind of uh, e joy to use, easy to use, user-friendly. So all these things, otherwise, and simple, otherwise, it's not going to be adopted. It's going to be even, you know, adding to the headache of clinicians rather than supporting them. So it's very important to co-innovate and think how it's going to fit into clinical practice. And that's, this will make the change management kind of easier. That's a really important point. And I think if we look at the question of why has it taken so long for healthcare to adopt digital and technology in general, I think it's often down to that point of the technology has not been fit for purpose. It's not been designed to save time for the clinicians or to produce some value somewhere in the system that's tangible and worth the effort of adoption. And I think one of the biggest culprits in that area has probably been clinical uh, electronic clinical records. Uh, which, you know, it, it, when they were introduced, were very clumsy and flexible and time-consuming and produced very little benefit. So as you say, Katerina, it's it's really important that, that it, we don't just think about the technology itself, but we really work hard to ensure that it's developed and presented in a way that makes it fit for purpose to produce a benefit for you know, the, whole, all, the whole ecosystem, all the users who are going to be engaged with it. 
Yeah, I think that's very much key, isn't it? Is is working in that collaborative way? Um, because otherwise, if you're designing technology without the user in mind, it's just it's not going to get picked up so well. Um, Andra, oh, oh, sorry. When it's no, when the okay. time is right, can I give you some examples of things that have worked really well that we never expected? Um, yes, in terms I think of the, the time is right world? now. Is it, is it a good time? Great. Um, thank you. So when I founded the National Problem Gambling Clinic in 2008, most people were in bookmakers, uh, so they would go in person to gamble. And then they, you know, come home two hours after they left to get a pint of milk and, the, you know, their wife would go, where have you been? You know, and that would be that. It would be very hard to control and to really know the facts. But, of course, over the last decade, uh, when everything has now moved online, um, uh, that has made it difficult in the sense that availability is 24-7. So people, um, you know, can do it from their home. They don't need to find an excuse to leave. However, um, a few years ago, um, technology came to our help. And um, the first thing that happened was that uh, software was developed to prevent accessing uh, gambling websites or gambling anything from people's uh, devices if they so wished, if they wished to stop that from happening. And so suddenly the outcomes started improving because we were able to do the work clinically and people people were able to stay away from the uh, from the stimuli in the environment. And the second thing that happened that is again linked to digitalization is that the, that people were able to uh, bank with specific banks that allowed an app to allow them to self-exclude from gambling expenses. And that too, and, and the two coupled together have made an enormous difference to our uh, relapse rates. That's really, really interesting. Um, I also wanted to talk to you all about the um, the patient facing side of things, because I think often we um, sometimes forget that not all patients want to use digital services. Um, obviously, at Digital Health, we're big champions of technology, but it doesn't necessarily work for everyone. Um, so how do you go down the path of digitizing medicine, but also making sure that we're still inclusive of everyone that needs to be included? Well, in fact, I was with a group of uh, cancer patients and clinicians a few days ago, um, which was really interesting because what they expressed was that, you know, this is 2021, but they are still finding that the access to information is severely limited and there are very long delays finding information. For example, imagine how frustrating and anxiety-inducing it is to have a, a you know, a routine follow-up test to see how your treat, uh, your condition's progressing, to have to wait for weeks before you get the result uh, and to not be able to access that without going into the hospital physically and having a face-to-face meeting with the consultant. So I think from the patient perspective, there's a great need for better communication of information. So data itself is so key, but it's the communication of the data as well that's so so important. And patients are ready to embrace technology. You know, we're all using our our phones for for banking, as uh, Henrietta just mentioned, and, and being able to use those sorts of devices to be able to access our health information is a critical thing that I think most patients want. Um, so on the note of communication, um, our, our software is primarily um, for surgeons, for brain surgeons who, will be, who are planning the, the brain surgery uh, with the help of the software to make it more accurate and safe. However, we have a patient advisory board that 
sort of we consult on a regular basis. And it was so interesting and insightful to talk to them about their experiences undergoing these procedures that gave us a lot of um, uh, insights into how we can improve our solution to make it sort of uh, to even to discover a new use case. So they they shared amazingly and excruciatingly difficult uh, stories and personal stories about sort of what it means for a patient, for example, to undergo a procedure like that. The enormous anxiety before surgery, you know, the inability to even digest and understand what is going to happen to them. So, and pre, pre-operative anxiety. Um, and through those kind of conversations, it's extremely important, uh, you know, to, to, to consult patients and to see, again, to have a kind of systems view on the whole journey uh, of, you know, where your solution kind of touches. Um, so we discovered that another use case, for example, for our tool could be that clinicians, the surgeons are actually in the process of explaining the patient about the risk and what is going to be done to them, show their, you know, show their potential surgery in our solution to really make it, um, to explain the decisions that are being made to reduce the preoperative anxieties. There are studies, for example, that show that um, it, for a lot of patients, it works if they have more information about the surgery, about the facts. It reduces the preoperative anxiety, and of course, that in as a consequence uh, improves um, patient outcomes and sort of uh, the improves the recovery. It's very interesting the work that's being done in the field, um, which means I'm sure we're going to have a very good time listening to your sessions at Rewired, um, which leads me on to asking you guys um, if you're able to give us a very sneak peek about what you're going to be discussing at the event in March. I'm assuming we've already covered a lot of it. Um, but Tim, I know that you're chairing it for us. So I thought I might hand over to you um, to tell us a bit more about what you're hoping to get across uh, on the day. Thank you, Andrea. This the session is, is is really exciting, and the Royal Society of Medicine is really delighted to be partnering with Digital Health Rewired for this session. And of course, most of all, to have these great speakers um, we have today with us, plus also uh, Nadine, who is joining us on the day. And and I think one important place to start is the fact that the amount we spend on health globally is predicted to increase by more than fifty percent over the next five years if we don't find new ways of delivering better healthcare. And a lot of that is about prevention of disease as well as managing uh, health conditions as they they turn up. If we look at some of the statistics from the UK, we can see that in general practice, more than 300 million consultations are delivered every year and keep rising. Attendances at emergency departments have been doubling over the last 10 years. And the number of patients referred to outpatient specialist clinics continues to increase year on year. So we really need solutions to these issues. And uh, the COVID pandemic has precipitated adoption of video consulting and more remote services. And I think everybody can see that that's a good thing that we can continue to make use of. But we need more than that, don't we? And so, you know, I'm really looking forward to finding out from our speakers you know, what they're doing and how their contributions are going to help us to de- develop new healthcare systems that are much more focused around the patient, around preventing disease and, and in- enabling us to stay out of hospital and stay out of emergency departments as much as possible. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing all of that too. Um, so Henrietta, I was hoping you could maybe give us a little sneak about what you're going to be talking about. Um, yes, so so I will be really giving you a very uh, personal 
uh, account of uh, what it what it's been like to to be to be leading these two uh, national clinics that are both so uh, intrinsically technological in relation to the activities that my patients are involved in, and how um, uh, and and how that. Uh, activity has um, interplayed with the COVID lockdown and the subsequent transformation of services. And also when I say personal, I will bring in uh, the patient's perspective and the clinician's perspective. I've got two teams uh, who have been extremely good at letting me know uh, what their um, what their experiences of this digitalization of treatment has been. That sounds really interesting. It's always good to get both perspectives as well. Um, I think our our listeners and our attendees really appreciate that. Um, Christian, how about you? Yeah, very excited to be at the uh, speaking at the event, and um, much of my focus will be really on my experiences that I have with leadership in this sector. So, how uh, many of the questions. Uh, that are usually uh, in, on the desk, on uh, the table of leaders in the healthcare sector, uh, both in governments, uh, startups, uh, and authorities, you know, how they can be more practical around these uh, topics, uh, sharing um, how you can get a better understanding of the art of the possible around this new technologies, focusing uh, a lot on machine learning and AI. Uh, what's happening in this sector, giving examples uh, on what we have been experiencing here in the Nordics, uh, as we have a lot of application areas also uh, within uh, AI and COVID in Sweden, Finland and Norway. And um, also getting across the sense of um, AI being an enabler uh, of a one-size-fits-one approach. So while digital enables access to information, the spread of information and allows platforms of exchange. AI has the ability to really provide information uh, to individuals, give them advice, both patients and doctors and other users in the system, so that they can make much more, let's say, they can be much more um, focusing on the tasks that they, they are good at and have to focus less on the tasks which are sort of tedious and, and annoying, let's say. And um, that, that will be a focus. Yeah, there is a lot of... A lot of potential in that area, isn't there? Um, and Katerina, last but absolutely not least, what will you be talking about? Yeah, same. Uh, extremely excited um, in participating uh, in this session. So in my talk, I will try to give um, a flavor of a complete journey um, in this sort of niche, innovate, trying to innovate in this niche clinical area of brain surgery. So really from where we started four years ago, very much, uh, you know, from an academic research project in engineering to where we are today, having a certified medical product for brain surgery and now entering clinical pilots across the NHS uh, with the UK government's AI and Health and Care Award. I will especially focus on the key learnings, uh, basically what I wished I knew at that time um, and how the journey um, really looks like from inside out. I will also try to highlight challenges that we over, had to overcome and that I hope will be relevant to our audience. I'm sure they will be relevant. Um, it sounds like it's going to be a really, really interesting discussion. Um, 
at the risk of upsetting all the other sessions, it is the one I'm looking forward to the most. <laughs> so I can't wait for it. Um, and while I've got all of our wonderful listeners' attention about Rewired, uh, I do want to let you know a little bit more about the event. Uh, as I said earlier in the podcast, um, obviously, we've all had to go virtual. So it is going to be a five-day virtual festival about all of the fun things that are going on in the world of digital health and health IT. Uh, we have some really great sessions lined up for you one of which you've already heard from today. But we've also got sessions on digital responses to COVID. We have a digital transformation summit. Our digital leadership summit is back. And we have another session called the new normal, which is a phrase that I'm sure we're all too familiar with now. And of course, Pitchfest is back for another year, which is our competition to help launch health, health tech startups sorry, in the NHS. For the second year in a row, the winners are going to get a chance to test their innovation through CW+, which is the innovation arm of Chelsea and Westminster Hospital's charity. So that's a really excellent opportunity for them. I have already had a sneak peek at some of the finalists this year, and I can tell you there are some really great ideas in there. So Pitchfest is not one to be missed. So it's all going to be very exciting, and I may be biased and also paid by Digital Health, but I do think it's the best virtual health IT event around. So make sure you head on over to digitalhealthrewired.com to check out our program and to register to attend. And it will be held on March 15 to 18, so make sure you've blocked that out in your calendar. That is digitalhealthrewired.com for more information. And that's a wrap on another episode of Digital Health Unplugged. Henrietta, Katerina, Christian and Tim, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an excellent discussion. I've really enjoyed it. And to everyone tuning in, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, we publish fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iTunes. So you can give us a follow on any of those platforms to keep up to date with what we're doing. And if you do have a podcast suggestion, we're really keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcast at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We'll catch you in two weeks time.